<laughs> Graham said this morning, wow, thanks Andy so much because like, this is a really great topic to speak on. It's all right. I actually want you to get a gist of joy. I know that looks like a rather dark picture, but it's not. It's a real picture of, um, I don't know, I find it ethereal. I'm not really... Well, no, I think it's a tunnel made out of trees perhaps, but I just find it a really peaceful picture to look at. But I want you to get um, tonight, it's not about um, discouragement and gloominess. I want you to get and I want you to catch the fact that it's joyful what I'm telling you tonight and to be encouraged by what I'm telling you tonight. Okay, who has heard of Mythbusters. Yeah, okay, so we're at the generation of Mythbusters. Actually, they've been going for a long time. Yeah, they've been going for a really long time. So what they do though, right, is they get a myth and they apply evidence to either dispel the myth or like bust it or find the truth in the theory and then confirm the myth. One of the theories that they tested quite a few years ago was um, out of a scene, they wanted to test a theory, it was in a scene of Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, I forget the actual which one it was, number one, two, three, I don't know. But um, in one of the scenes, two pirates, they use a rowboat under, they're walking on the bottom of the ocean. Which one is it, Ben? Right. So, (laughs) no, (laughs) not Jaws. Which one is it, Ben? The first one. So they're carrying, these two pirates are carrying a rowboat on the walking along the bottom of the ocean and the idea is that they've created an air bubble by which to breathe through. So they decided, the Mythbuster guys decided they're going to test this theory. Do you think it worked? Well, sadly for them, they got the rowboat in the water but they couldn't even get to the bottom because their bodies had so much buoyancy in it that it failed. Tonight... Our theory is to bust this, sorry, our myth is this to bust. That as a child of God, suffering is optional. I told you it was a joyful message for you tonight. You thought otherwise, didn't you? Now, I'm not going to get you to do anything practical tonight to test this because it might hurt, but we will look at some evidence that's slightly less painful for you. (laughs) That's right, just, yeah, they just, No, no, I'm okay standing. You're being very kind. Uh, So, let's have a look at evidence A. This is a letter that Peter's written. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you'll have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it's revealed to all the world. So be happy when you're insulted for being a Christian for then the glorious spirit of God rests upon you. Now this letter is written toward the end of Peter's life and he's writing like a pastoral letter if you like to the churches that are um, in the minor at the Asia Minor region and it's about, it's probably about five regions they talk about this letter going to. So it would have, he wouldn't have written hundreds of letters, he would have written one letter that was then passed around to all the different churches. Perhaps Peter was aware that he's close to the end of his life and so he sends this letter as an encouragement to all the churches, maybe his last hurrah. He was one of Jesus' closest disciples, the first chosen, kind of maybe what you'd like to call a leader of the disciples. 
I really love Peter I, and I love the way he writes his letter because his brain makes me feel like mine is probably okay, that it's a bit of a roller coaster, an amusement. In the beginning of his letter, he writes that they're holy people living with great expectations. They're heirs of heaven. They're protected. You'll find that in 1 Peter 1. They're living stones in God's own temple, and that's in 1 Peter 2. So he's grounding hope and he's stating their privilege. He builds them up and up, kind of like you're on that roller coaster. You know, the slow incline on a roller coaster. It's really slow. With great anticipation, you're waiting for that hill, aren't you? And then Peter comes down to the suffering and the trials, the great whooshing decline on the other side of the roller coaster, (laughs) up and down, up and down. If you read 1 Peter, you'll see it's up, elevate you, bring you up, build you up, then down you come with suffering and trials. So the way he's chosen to write this letter really is to build the church up. But like Graham likes to say, forewarned is forearmed. You proud of me for using that tonight? Yeah, I listen to you. Let's just imagine that you're on the roller coaster, you're headed up the incline and you've got this big speaker blaring words of exciting information about the climb up. It's building the expectation of what's to come. And then just as you're about, sorry, just as you're on the peak of the decline about to go down, the loudspeaker yells, hold steady, it's going to be a big drop. Peter's a man that does that. If you read Peter's letter. He's a man that knows well the ups and downs. He knows all the peaks and the drops. And as Andy reminded us last week, he was there with Jesus. He was walking with him at the peak of his ministry, witnessing the miraculous. He was there when Jesus, his friend, suffered for the glory of his father. So this isn't just filler in Peter's letter. Peter's suffered personally in a really great way when he denied Christ. Like, I mean great as in large way when he denied Christ. Not just the once, but we know it was the three times. Even though that was all part of God's great plan. But then he had to deal with the guilt of it. When Jesus stood right there before him, with no sweeping it under the rug and pretending it didn't happen, Jesus was right there confronting Peter. So he knows suffering. And yet through his suffering, he's attained partnership with Christ in such a deep way that he encourages and spurs us to hold on and to grab hold of that suffering with both hands and welcome it into our lives with joy. Be happy when it comes your way. He's forewarning us not to just steady ourselves, but to hold steady and to enjoy the ride. That's evidence A. Let's look at evidence B. The world's reaction to suffering. It just happens. I'm not actually going to quote that. I can't say that. But perhaps, <laughs> if I use the King James translation, dung happens. <laughs> this is a really popular view of society, isn't it? That it just happens. And it's true. Suffering does happen to people everywhere. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. So this sums it up quite well what most people like to say across a large area of the Western world. But let's unpack it. If we're just to take a minute to analyse what that slogan means to, to support evidence B. So first, this ideology or theology believes that suffering equals dung. Whilst it's true that suffering is like dung, as in we all have to do it on a daily basis. That's where the similarity ends. (laughs) Sorry, 
I've taken you down to the gutter level, haven't I? That's where it ends though, okay? Because the idea that suffering is equal to dung insists that it isn't just worthless, it's repulsive and disgusting. It's got no value. It's detrimental to our health. It's actually something that we would all do well without if we could control that. However, if it happens to someone that we truly believe deserves it, then it was due to come their way and they deserve all they get, don't they? Payback, or as some call it, karma. Second, that it's random and senseless. Of all the tragedies in the world to focus on, and I was thinking about different occasions where dreadful sufferings occurred, but it's always had a religious uh, persuasion behind it or of personal benefit. I I was thinking about the school massacres in the US and then in our own country, Port Arthur. They were senseless and random. They came upon innocent victims unexpectedly without rhyme, reason or provocation. Thirdly, it just happens. That it's unpredictable and it's unavoidable. We can't do anything to avoid it and we certainly can't make anything of it when it happens. It hasn't got a reason behind it. We just have to accept and endure it, hoping that it's going to end as soon as possible. So, let's just weigh the evidence. Evidence B. If it's a secular world idea that's dung, repulsive, no value, deserved only to those we detest, payback, senseless, random, unpredictable, unavoidable. So, Peter's theory that it's expected, it's glad, you should be glad by it. It creates partnership, victory, wonderful joy, maturity. He's not just referring to suffering in general. In this part of his letter, he's really referring to a particular type of suffering, which is suffering for our faith. Don't we want to believe that whilst we're pursuing our relationship with Christ and we're suffering along for it, that it's for a reason and for a purpose, that it's not simply done. Another champion of our faith who suffered trials that are well documented and as Graham spoke about this morning, Paul, and he says in Romans 8.28, and I love it because I had already put this verse in my sermon. Graham used this verse this morning also. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. In this passage, Paul's referring to our future in God's glory so that for a future in glory with God, everything that happens he works in and works for those who love him. I don't think Peter adheres to the secular statements either. In fact, he goes so far as encouraging us not to just be glad, doesn't he, but to be very glad in our suffering. I love that he doesn't say, You're going to suffer at the hands of your enemies for your faith. It's going to be bad. So you can kick, you can scream like Graham did this morning and you can be bitter. God will understand because you're standing up for him. No. He says be very glad. He's clearly pushing and harvesting the notion that we're Jesus freaks. Who's heard of that term before? DC talk? Yeah, okay. His theory goes directly against the myth, doesn't it? It's like jumping out of an aeroplane. Who's skydived before? Freaks. 
Did you, hang on, did you enjoy it? Did you enjoy it? You're a freak. Did you enjoy it? Did you? And oh, you also must be a freak because you fly up in an aeroplane, you are strapped usually to someone of much more experience than you. In fact, in my case, it was a guy with about 30 years experience. And then he says, wiggle over to the edge of the plane. Now, he sits on the edge of the plane. I'm not. My bottom's in front of his. So I'm literally hanging out the plane waiting for the okay. Oh, I thought it was Graham. Oh, it would make more sense. Okay, so it is the ministers who are quite freaky. And you enjoyed it. So this is my point exactly. Skydiving goes against everything your body is telling you not to do. My body was telling me, don't sit on the edge of the plane. Don't hang out of the plane. But those guys do it. Well, I waited till the bottom till I was sick. But those guys do it again and again and again and they get a kick out of it. And they're seriously freaks. And I'd say that to their face too. <laughs> Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad. So I guess if we adhere to Peter's theory, then we're freaks too, right? Because it goes against everything our bodies, our minds, our spirits are telling us. And why be very glad that these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering? I married Andy, we know that. I'm very glad I did, by the way. Without spending a lengthy time going into his story because he shares it with you himself quite well. But before he was an ordained minister, okay, and I want to use that term, ordained minister, not to put him on a pedestal, but I want to acknowledge and honour the fact that he made that commitment in his life to be an ordained minister. Uh, (laughs) He made the decision, sorry darling, to leave a financially adventurous, prominent and prosperous life with national parks. That is possible. He did that before I knew him. He chose to give up an incredibly comfortable life. All of his belongings, literally, he drove from Armidale to Sydney with a bag, I think one bag, in the back of his ute. To struggle financially with nothing and gave up his life of selfishness for selflessness. This is all before I ever went on our first bushwalk together. The life that Andy chose to commit to wasn't the life that I'd chosen for myself. But in loving him, in choosing to commit my life to a partnership with him, I too chose to suffer in all the ways that he does. (laughs) You laugh. (laughs) I'm trying to make a really lovely statement. (laughs) I tell you what. Look, I tell you what, as an aside, if God actually did reveal to me that that was the life for me too, I think I would have run very quickly. I told you to. I know. I didn't listen. But because I choose to continually suffer with him, it brings us closer all the time and we've learned to grow up together. Our partnership is maturing. I like to think it is. The life that he chose to commit to and the life I chose to follow and commit to as well is now a life that's loaded with blessings because we suffer for God's glory together. And each time that we decide to endure something together, we're drawn closer and closer again and again. So it's an ever-growing relationship. Imagine if we were going through things or if Andy was going through something significant and I chose not to. 
There's no growth, there's no security, there's nothing. But we do it together. Now, I know that some of you aren't married, but I bet some of you here do go to the gym. Suppose you ask someone to be a gym partner and their only task was to go with you, sit and watch while you sweat it out on the treadmill, while you labour with the weights, while you punch the boxing bag, do all the stomach crunches. What would happen for your partner? Nothing. You'd do all the strengthening, they wouldn't. You'd see all the transformation in your body, they wouldn't, in theirs. Only one of you does the hard work and the other just watches on. I don't expect that you'd be gym partners for very long. The fact is that a legitimate gym partner is there so that you spur one one another on at about 5.30 in the morning to run longer, harder, faster, lift weights, be assisted to lift weights. You take turns in stabilising one another while you do the crunches. The transformation happens then for both of you. You get to say that you've shared that experience together. As handsome and as smart and as loving as Andy is and as wonderful as our partnership is, there's someone else that we partner with above all else. That's Jesus. What did he choose to surrender to before any of us even knew him? Graham very eloquently and passionately led us this morning through the ways that Jesus suffered in so many different ways. Thanks, Graham. That really was beautiful. He left his place of comfort and position to suffer under the hands of the Pharisees, his own family, his blood family, the lawmakers, the community, and you'd even say that he suffered at the hands of his mortal enemy. But he did it to bring us the greatest partnership we could ever experience. And that's the partnership with his father, God. It's not just one way, it's not just one way as in one way street that he partners with us, but he, sorry, that we partner with him. He partners with us as well. It's a two way street. He entrusts us as his hands and his feet to bring light and love and freedom to all around us. And he even uses us, doesn't he, to make the miraculous happen. And I love how Graham again, sorry I'm picking on you Graham, but I really appreciated your sermon this morning. I love how Graham reminded us of Jesus' last words before he died. As he again returned to his father's arms, using some of the words of a prayer that his mother Mary had taught him as a child. And his words were, Father, into your arms I commit my spirit. We're all seeking to be closer to God, to committing our spirit to him. Isn't that why we keep coming back here each week? Why we seek to know more of him through his word and through fellowship with him to be spurred on? So aren't we saying that in the same way that I'm committed to Andy, that we're committed to him, that we want to be partners with him? Now just as we're looking at a letter Peter wrote to a congregation, I've actually asked Graham and Loz to write letters to themselves at a particular age in the same forewarned is forearmed mindset. The front line comes with territory, doesn't it? So I'm going to ask Graham first if you could um, perhaps come and read your letter. Thanks, Melissa. Let me just quickly... The reason why it's on an iPad is because I ran out of ink in my printer. A letter to myself. Dear Graham, well, this is weird. I mean, writing a letter to myself. I'm 38 years old. 
<laughs> and life is busy but good. Robin is amazing, and the four kids lack nothing. Our finances, well, let's just say there's no problem. I guess you could say that I'm pretty pleased with the way all things are panning out. Having said that, I know that I could not have achieved all of this without Robin's help, her patience and support. And Father God being with me and giving me the energy and stamina to work those long hours and make the necessary sacrifices for the family. I still can't believe that I have a business agreement with McDonald's New Zealand. That makes me a part owner of a McDonald's restaurant. They say owning a Macca's is a license to print money. And mm. I can tell you there's truth in that statement if you manage all of it well. But I will never forget the morning God spoke with me and reminded me of a time I committed my life to serving him full time. I clearly remember the words Jesus spoke to me that morning. Remember, Graham, when you were 18 and I called you to serve me full time? Now is the time. Come follow me. Wow, I thought. God had forgotten that night. No, he didn't forget. He just wears a different watch to mine and his watch holds perfect time. I was so over the moon I could barely hold back my excitement. However, the euphoric feeling began to fade as God put me on his potter's wheel and began to shape and mould me by methodically stripping away from me the things that would be an obstacle or a distraction for me in pursuing his will and his plans. I've got to say that these are the hardest days Rob and I have known since we were married. And I say we are in pain, and if I was to say we are in pain, that that would not be an exaggeration. So heavy is his hand upon us, I feel like I want to give up any thought of pursuing full-time ministry. This morning we're praying and we're weeping. God, please help us. I turn to our daily Bible reading and it's from Philippians 4.4. 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. There's no thunderclap from heaven, but I know without any doubt that Jesus is speaking to me and what he's saying in this verse is for our deliverance from this suffering and trial. That morning I learned a valuable lesson that no matter how fierce the trial may be, no matter how painful, that God is sovereign over all circumstances and that he is with me. And that my response to whatever the trial may be or how intense the pain is to stay focused on him, mm -hmm. to rejoice in him, and to be thankful to him.
we're truly, if we're truly wanting to partner with Christ, then we need to keep in mind that to be a truly committed partner with him, we'll go through times of suffering, pain, grief for him in order that we might grow. And I'm sure that if you were to ask Graham, he'd tell you that his partnership, his relationship with God is far closer today because of that suffering and Rob as well. They were committed to enduring, but they were committed to enduring the time of suffering, the trial with joy and rejoicing. We shouldn't be surprised when trials come our way then, should we? We should expect them with open arms, even with great anticipation, because we know that when those times of sufferings come knocking, they have meaning. There was a meaning to Graham's trials and Rob's trials. There was a greater growth that had to happen for them. It brought them and it brings us closer into a partnership with Christ. We might even find that we grow up through them. In partnership with Christ, if God has called you, then he has also graced you with whatever you need for whatever territory you encounter. Let me say that again. If God has called you, then he has also graced you with whatever you need for whatever territory you encounter. Loz is going to talk to us about her territory. I hope. We didn't discuss this. Okay. Dear Lauren, it is Christmas 2012 and you have just finished your first year of high school. It was everything you, ima- everything you imagined, popularity, boys, dating and fun. But as you now know and quickly realise that is a life without Jesus and purpose and that you can't live both lives switching from personalities. This is a significant night for you. Tonight you turn the boat around and take the first of many steps to surrender your life to Jesus, your King. Mm. You are unaware of the hardships that come with this narrow path, but you cannot deny your encounter with your heavenly prince and the hope he gives your life. You are now going into your eight, although with a renewed attitude. You felt convicted that in order to fully submit to God and live exclusively as his child, you would need to leave your friend group. You could see that they weren't going to encourage you or allow you to flourish. As a newly born-again daughter with a faith of her own, you needed to be free from influence and worldly desires. So boldly and faithfully, that's what you did. As a 14-year-old girl, you were courageous and bold, although sometimes a little too much. You were like a tornado, fearlessly making known the gospel to all those nerdy atheist boys. You were either spending lunchtimes alone or naively but fiercely debating evolution and God's existence. Just remember to love as well, my darling. Um, as, as your eight girls do, your old friend group bickers about you some days and your beliefs. Although for some reason you are mostly unaware of your surroundings and how people truly see you now. You continue to take every opportunity to share Jesus with people and invite them into a relationship with him, sometimes a little too relentlessly. Throughout year eight, you invite the girls to youth group and to Camp Kedrum. When successful, you are excited to have seemingly converted a friend whom, whom could encourage you at school. After your return from camp, some of the girls from school, are, some of the girls from school you are happy to... You're happy that they enjoyed themselves and that they were showing interest in the thought of a God. However, once home and back at school, you sit on the bus whilst the girls in the row behind you mock your Christian camp songs and your father. 
You feel protective of your God and wonder, how dare they? But you were also deeply hurt and feeling betrayed. For the first time, I think you became aware of the consequences of your faith and felt a little bit knocked to the ground. After this, you settled down a little bit and toned your evangelistic rampage. Chin up, Lozzie. Lean into his love. He's got you. Keep shining that little light. You are now in your tent, still courageous and bold, and still filled with the overwhelming passion for Jesus and filled with the Spirit. Despite flagging your colours at school, you managed to connect with a few friends last year whom you may or may not have scared away except for one. Since she was still around and hanging on, you thought you'd tap a little harder. She comes on camp. Woohoo! Finally, right? One of your friends finally found Jesus who didn't mock your mighty God, but instead found his love and acceptance. It's about halfway through the year when you hit a major roadblock. You have two major operations on both of your legs that will take you out and end your taekwondo career. This comes as a shock to you, as prior to the ops, you were planning to be, re- be running around again two weeks later and competing in the tryouts for junior world championships in Canada two months later. However, that, co- that quickly becomes a fantasy, as operations were worse and more major than you had all anticipated, and the rehab was more painful and longer than expected. You go through the motions and disappointment of an elite athlete whose career had been swiped out from under them. You aren't doubting God or his purpose for this or how it will one day benefit you, but you are depressed and feeling a little defeated. You are now in year 11. Your friend who found Jesus is now distracted with a boyfriend and has left school. This year has been hard for you. I know that. You are clearly experiencing how lonely the walk with God can sometimes feel. You have no friend group at school and no friends at school. Everyone seems to be keeping your arm's reach because of your evangelistic reputation. You're an absolute social outcast and unable to relate to any of your partying peers. Some days it upsets you and hurts you. Other days, Netflix and the newest fad television show provides, as well as God's blessing, as well as the comfort in knowing God's blessings and promises, provides enough to pull you through the day. But behind all of that, you do long for a friend who would encourage and laugh with you. Keeping your head high and hiding God's hand, you understand and relate more deeply than ever when you read verses about suffering for your faith, being persecuted and an outcast to this world. Life's hard and you are really struggling to see hope or feel victorious. Although you seek to find joy in the Lord, you feel as though you haven't been happy in a truly long time. It feels as though the past years, for as long as you can remember, have been filled with trial after trial, persecution after persecution, and suffering after suffering. Mm. You have lost the joy in your step and the crazy part of your personality that once filled the room whenever you, wherever you went. People don't understand what's happening in others' lives, so it's understandable that the people truly, don't, truly aren't aware of what you are facing, and nobody other than God and you will truly realise. You have happy and carefree moments, but overall you are struggling with it all. You can't see the light at the end of any of your tunnels. But you know God is good and he is who he says he is. But you struggle to understand your purpose or how he was going to take all of this and turn it to good. Well, babe, I just want to let you know that despite suffering and hardships, I can now see how each day God has revealed more and more of his love to me, even when I failed to see it. I see how deeply he cares for me, how he mourns with me. Um, I've learned he also hates what makes me cry and feel broken. Although I I still haven't seen the light or purpose behind our struggles, I'm keeping hopeful and faithful 
in God's promising word. God is so good, Lauren. He is so faithful, so providing and so prevalent in our life. It's harder to hold on to that some days more than others. But it's life's truth, it's life's truth to you that won't change. He wants the best for you and me. And you'll be a more godly, compassionate, empathetic, understanding, disciplined, wiser woman of God for it. Just keep your hand tightly holding on to his and I'm sure we will look back onto this and see the light and its blessing. Thanks, love. Even in all that suffering, you can see how much closer and how much stronger the partnership between God and Lauren is, regardless of the sufferings and the trials, not regardless of them, but because of the sufferings and the trials, regardless of how up and down, like I said, roller coaster. And I imagine if Loz was to ask those around her who um, were in her sphere of influence, some, most of them, who don't know Jesus, they'd probably tell us that when it came to that kind of suffering that they'd run away from it, they'd avoid it. So don't we sound really ridiculous when we're admitting that we might greet suffering with great expectation in order to take that step in growing closer to God? We see through Graham and Lauren's stories, suffering is times to rejoice, times to grow and grow up, a time to show peace beyond all understanding, a time to show God's love and his mercy. We could take the easy road and stay clear of dangerous territory. Territory that pushes us into standing up for our faith. But instead, we choose to run towards it. Like I said, we're freaks, right? When we look at evidence, I think that it's always really important to go back and have a look at how humans have reacted historically to adversity, and particularly Christians, because perhaps their experiences have helped us today. Perhaps Graham and Lauren's experiences have helped you in some way today. So many suffered for their faith in the times of the Old Testament. You can think of Abraham, Job, Joseph, virtually all the Old Testament prophets suffered. But let's make it easy. Let's look at a large group of freed slaves who we know were immensely grateful to God because they were suffering at the hands of their enemies due to their faith. You might say, knowing that this is the Israelites I'm hoping, you might say, poor Israelites, you kept suffering even after your freedom. You were suffering in your pilgrimage towards the promised land. And I'd say that too if I think I was them. I'd be whinging. I'd be suffering, definitely. But I feel a little bit bad for Jeremiah and Moses. Moses was leading them, listening to all of their complaints at the same time as trying to reassure them where he knew God was taking them. And Jeremiah, who was a prophet who walked at the time with the Israelites, was hearing the way that the Israelites were complaining and watching their faith ebb and flow, probably with great frustration and hopefully a lot of understanding. Remember that these guys were in slavery for 400 years prior to this release. God had had enough. He said, stop, enough. Don't treat my people so harshly. We all know this story. It was him who rescued them through the signs and wonders. It was him who provided all that they needed for their 40-year journey. And I'm sure as frustrated as God as Moses and Jeremiah might have been, God saw that there were those, just like Lauren was saying, and like Graham used these words, kept their gazes, held their gazes to Jesus. They never failed in their pursuit of and partnership with him. In Jeremiah 17, 5 to 10, even Oceans, the song we were singing earlier, 
is pretty much, I think, about the second part of this. Cursed are those who put their trust in me, humans, who rely on human strength and turn their hearts away from the Lord. They're like stunted shrubs in the desert with no hope for the future. They'll live in the barren wilderness in an uninhabited salty land. But blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope, their confidence. They're like trees planted along a riverbank with roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruit. When I read about the Israelites, I like to think of them as pioneers. Well, what's a pioneer? Pioneers pave the way for themselves and others because they're on a journey to go somewhere. Their reward is in front of them. It's a destination and so they press on. The journey to get where they're going hurts. It hurts physically. Both Lauren and Graham referred to pain. It hurts emotionally, mentally. You encounter setbacks and even death. There are times of plenty and then there's times of nothing. But pioneers keep their eyes focused on their goal because the expectation of their destination at the end is great. Keeping in mind those aspects, physical, emotional, mental pain and setbacks, you might say that we too are pioneers on a journey. I'm reading at the moment Bobby Houston's book, Stay the Path, and I just want to quote something from her book. The father never promised that the way home would be easy. It isn't. Peel it back a layer and it's a vehement battlescape where life and death, heaven and hell, demons and angels struggle. It's a way carved forward only because Jesus allowed himself to be the sacrifice for our redemption. But the prevailing perspective I want to bring to you today is that again, no weapon formed against you shall prosper if you stay on the straight and on the narrow. And the straight and the narrow Bobby refers to may be in verse 19, uh, sorry, in verse 15 of 1 Peter 4, if you suffer, however, it must not be for murder, stealing, making trouble or prying into other people's affairs. In other words, if you put your hand in the fire, there's going to be no sympathy for the pain you feel. Now, among some Christians, Peter's warnings, Peter's encouragement in relation to suffering, hearing what Graham and Lauren are talking about is controversial. And the fact that I'm even suggesting that we should bust this myth wide open would almost seem heretical, I think, to some people. The idea that a child of God's suffering is optional has to reveal a distorted gospel and we need to stay focused on the fact that we're not... I don't have a Bible, so this is a Bible. It's not a watered-down message. We don't want a message that's unhelpful. And I'd go so far to even say that that kind of theology, saying that once we've accepted Christ in our lives that suffering goes, is emasculated. That means it is to castrate it, deprive it, deprive it of any strength, to weaken it. Jesus is somehow presented to us here as an earthly bliss. It's a modification of the gospel so that it appeals to our flesh, makes it appeal to what suits us right now. Like faith is the currency of heaven, it gets God to move. I'm sure some of you have heard that. How can we live within the realms of reality if we think that Jesus died on a cross, on the cross, to be our genie, that everything disappears? 
we wouldn't begin to think that we can learn anything to grow up in any area if we change something as meaty and as sustaining to us as Peter's message to the church in this letter about suffering. And if the myth that suffering is optional is reliable, what do we make then of Jesus' beautiful words to Peter that he would pour out blessings upon those who'd be persecuted for his name's sake? We're in partnership with God and just as I changed my surname from Dixon to Collins, we could say that we inherited Jesus' name, didn't we? That means that we're currently being persecuted for his name's sake. It didn't stop at the end of Revelation, it's ongoing and we know that. The good news is that God is refining, not destroying us through our suffering. Those who love him dearly, as you've heard from Lauren and Graham, and I'm sure most of you if I asked you to talk as well, through the trials that are described as fire, we know that when we join him in all his glory in heaven, we're purified completely. But there is a process of purification that's happening to us now. He's readying us now. He's doing that process now so that when we're with him, him, with him in heaven, we're completely spotless. We shouldn't desire to go over. As I say to my kids when there's trouble ahead, you can't go over, you can't go under it, you can't go around it, you just have to go through it. But go through it with gusto because it's with a desire to go through it with and for him. Let's hold on to Jesus' theology, Peter's theology, that suffering isn't senseless or as repulsive to us as dung. Suffering for Christ leads to tastes of glory. It also gives glory to God. When we as believers suffer because of our faith, God is completely glorified. What a privilege and an honour to do that for our precious Saviour, to be able to do something in return for what his partnership does for us. Suffering for your faith is going to look different to mine, different to Graham's, different to Lauren's. You might not even feel like you've suffered yet on your journey, but as Peter says, you will. And as for the statement that we're trying to bust, it's actually taken from Desmond um, Tutu. Am I dead now? No. No, sorry, I meant this, just in case you're wondering. Dear child of God, I'm sorry to say that suffering is not optional. It's a certainty and when we do, don't be surprised. Recognise that the trials you're going through are there to help you to grow up, to mature in your partnership with Christ, to strengthen and bring closeness to your relationship with him so that you are partners together. Hold firmly onto God and keep your eyes fixed on the reward as the pioneers did, establishing wonderful strongholds in your lives that are unshakable in the face of adversity because good strongholds would always trump bad strongholds. That is the word of God as a really good stronghold. In Psalm 27, 1, David says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And one of the strategies of the enemy when you're in a time of trial, you heard Lauren talking about how despondent, how depressed she felt. Particularly suffering for the faith that you have, he's going to work on you to exhaust all of your proactive energies, to create diversions of worry and anxiety that are going to consume your mind and drain your emotional energy. Trust in God's divine care and keep pressing onward. 
knowing he's familiar with every single inch of that journey that you're on. He waits ahead of you, he walks beside and with you and he's your rear guard, rear guard when needed. And he's not surprised for one single second when you suffer for him. He's right there. He's your bodyguard, your army, your secret service. His legion of angels are like your secret service running behind, around, in front of you. He's there when you need him because you're marching forward for him. At the end of this passage, it might be what you might call the end of a paragraph in the letter that Peter's writing. He says in verse 19, So, if you're suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to the God who created you for he will never fail you. So, if you're suffering in a manner that pleases God, obviously not putting your hand in a fire, keep on doing what's right. It says he'll never fail you. Never fail you. He knows what you're going through. So, Have we busted the myth? I reckon we have. And with great joy, you know. It's with great joy and expectation that you should look forward to suffering for Christ because the reward is great. If you're feeling um, like the burden is too heavy for you and you can't really carry that right now, I'm sure Lauren felt at points in her you know, she was, you heard from Lauren, I'm sure at points she felt like the burden was just too great for her to carry on her own. At the end, after um, Dave and the team come up, really ask some of us for prayer. Graham and Lauren, I'm sure, and I will, but I'm sure Graham and Lauren will as well, pray for you. And you know what? Let's just not look inward either. I'm really aware that there are people out there that don't have a joyful outlook on suffering. And when they do go through times of trials, they don't have God to turn to. They can't say that they're suffering for a faith that has great reward. Sorry, my mouth is really dry. (laughs) So let's pray for them as well because it makes me really sad knowing that for them, there's nothing. They just have to sit in their suffering alone. So let's really pray for them. But if you want prayer, I'm going to pray for them now, but if you guys want prayer, anybody wants prayer, I'd come up and we would really love to pray for you. So let me close. Lord, we just thank you so much that our reward is you and we thank you so much, Lord, that the partnership with you is so great, so close, so rewarding, Lord. Father, I just really want to pray for um, the people that you may have brought to our mind that don't know you. Lord, I pray for um, just words where there might be a space where we can speak light and life into their situations, Lord. For those that are suffering amongst um, our friends, our family, our communities that don't have any hope, Lord, I pray that you would really stir in us and you would really convict us to sit with them, to hear how they're going, not just... um, Yeah, ignore their problems, Lord, but really hear how they're going and really want to help them, Lord, by showing them hope that only you can give us. We thank you so much, Heavenly Father, for you are good. Amen.